0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues.
0: Thanks for joining us on this edition of America Changed Forever. I spent much of the past week in Buffalo, New York. Of course, after the shooting at the Topps grocery store.
1: I was at Register 6 in the front end. I just finished cashing out a customer. And then we all paused. Everyone in the front end, customer, associate, everyone alike paused. No one moved. And then we heard some more. We saw the security guard backing up and responding to the threat. So we knew that we
0: were being hit. 13 people shot. 10 of them killed. All black. We have to direct our attention to these internet sites that inspire these young people that are radicalizing
2: them to be hate mongers, to be people who hate people because
0: the color of their skin. The alleged killer, according to a law enforcement source of mine, quote, evil, vile, hateful man. That's how a source close to the investigation described the alleged gunman. On this episode of America Change Forever, we're gonna talk about domestic terrorism, white supremacy, and the threat as it stands to black America and America as a whole.
1: When you look at the past 10 years at extremist-related murders in this country, a full 75% of those have been carried out by right-wing extremists, and most of those by white supremacists. I people think of the threat of ISIS and Al Qaeda, as sort of the deadliest threats even today. And yet the data shows one of the most, if not the most, in fact, most deadly threats is coming from within.
0: My first guest, Cornell William Brooks, the former president of the NAACP, currently at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also a civil rights attorney and an ordained minister. Cornell, thanks for being with us It's good to be with you, Jeff. as always. I wanted to talk to you because you are a man of wisdom in this last week with this shooting, this mass shooting, another one. we know that the alleged gunman is a white supremacist i mean the the stuff that he was allegedly writing obviously you know he he will um he will uh, face a judge. He will go through the legal system. You know, I'm saying alleged gunmen. It's been a tough week. It's been a tough week for African Americans in this country. It's been a tough week for anyone listening to the hate in those writings and seeing the images of the, the people who were shot and killed. Women, family members, innocent people. He's dressed in fatigues. He's a coward. What he did is cowardly. Um, And I wanted to talk to you because I want to hear your thoughts about what what this was in your view, what this means in your view. What are your thoughts? Well,
3: I don't think you can approach this moment with anything other than it. Than a, an emotional bluntness, a, a, a moral candor, and so I have to simply say I was outraged, uh, angered, in the deepest part of my soul, to see, because you have these images all over the all over the internet, a young racist slay, mow down, massacre. Innocent people, largely black people, uh, younger people, older people, church ladies, the kind of women who literally raised me in the bosom of the black church and just slaughtered them like animals. And to read subsequently that this racial terrorist practice, if you will, by killing Uh, animals beforehand. So this is just a level of anger and outrage and indignation that we all have to admit is a part of our response to this moment because it is simply, it, it goes beyond grief because human beings are not supposed to treat other human beings this way. And there's just a level of depravity and and evil here that is, is um, just difficult to put into words. And, you know, Jeff, when you, when you said that he was a coward, back in 2015, when another racial terrorist killed, massacred, slayed nine students of, of scripture... In Mother Emanuel AME Church, I went on CNN and called him the worst kind of a coward. I may well have been wrong. This coward, given the level of preparation, given the fact that he videotaped this, broadcast it live, left behind a manifesto describing not merely what he did, but uh, how he did it. He may well be an even worse coward than Dylan Roof was. And I didn't think that was possible. Yeah, I, I, you
0: know, they're all cowards, you know, and, you know, you bring up Dylan Roof. I was thinking about him this week, unfortunately, because there are similarities. I mean, in this case, we have evidence that this alleged suspect was sort of scouting out this grocery store and he was, you know, in some cases, he was talking to people who were being very nice to him. You know, in Dylan Roof's case, those parishioners invited him into that church. They welcomed him. And then he turned the, his weapon on them like that. What is wrong with people that they have that level of hate that someone who is going to open their heart, have you join them in their prayers? that you have so much hate in your heart that you can then look them in the eye and then gun them down. What is happening in this world? You know, it's, it's,
3: Jeff, you, you raise a point that I, I, I think all of us have to reflect on. Here we have in Buffalo, as we had in Charleston, two racial terrorists who literally represent the mirror as in opposite, as in reverse images, image of the people that they killed. So, in the case of Dylan Roof, you have someone who slaughtered nine people in a church with pure naked hate in response to their love. In the case of the buffalo killer, we have again a young man. Killing older people uh, in response to uh, their 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 kindness. I mean, you read about these people. You listen to the way people describe the victims in Buffalo. Their goodness, their kindness, their willingness to serve their community, juxtaposed compared to this uh, evil uh, man who traveled three hours. To, to kill these people. The, the point being is in each instance we have good juxtaposed to absolute evil. We have love juxtaposed and compared to hate, reverse images, and that's what's so hard I think for many of us to come to grips with. N- namely, you know you 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 listen to the way people describe the uh, Buffalo victims. And in in so many instances, you have people grieving and also extolling, um, memorializing, commending, not merely the person they lost, but also the service they rendered. And that is, it's very hard for us to process that as a country.
0: In investigating this Buffalo shooting... <clears throat> I spent several days in Buffalo, and it was, it was my second time there, and I was telling the crew, producer, photographer, sound guy that I was working with, that what I noticed about that city is that when you walk by someone white or black, they say hi. They acknowledge you. Hello. Hi. How are you? <laughs> it, it was a beautiful thing. Um, and this is all while we're talking about this mass shooting, and people, you know, they're grieving in Buffalo, they're hurting in Buffalo. Some people don't want to go to the store, they're afraid of what might happen. Kids are traumatized, and yet you have kindness. You know, I was, I parked my car as I was getting ready for a live shot, I was rushing, I, I had to park the car, and I parked it in the sheriff's uh spot in this um sheriff's deputy comes up to me he had a huge smile on his face he said very uh serious but he was smiling he said uh you can't park here and he kept smiling and he said yeah yeah you can't park here this is for law enforcement and you know i just moved my car but i was just struck by the fact that he was he was very direct but he was still smiling you know, he, he was still smiling. He was polite about it. And so, okay, I moved my car and I parked it someplace else and then ran to my life shot. But my point is, there's some good people in, in this country, some good people in Buffalo. And, the, you know, talking to you, an ordained minister, you know, how do you not get bitter at a time like this? How do you not develop hate in your heart? You know, it's... These are difficult times. You know, as Americans, it seems like we're just angry at each other. Angry. And I don't understand how it's gotten to this point where there is just so much hate. It's too much.
3: But, you know, Jeff, I, I, I would know that there... Are two kinds of anger in this country. There's the anger that many people have against one another, for one another. And then there's the anger that the best of us have when we are our best selves, when some of us exhibit the worst behavior. So there's anger at the slaying of 10 people. And then there's the anger that led to the slaying of those 10 people. And they're very different, right? So we are right to be angry about racism. We're right to be angry about the presence of white supremacy in what is supposed to be a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. We're right to be angry about that. But the this anger that uh, these white nationalists have for the democracy that we can be is contemptible, uh, is damnable. Uh, it is something that we need to vanquish from our society. So, you know, in other words, when you can turn, when you can turn to the dark corners of the web and you find people who are angry at the prospect and the possibility that you could have a society in which we have people from all corners of the world, um, all corners of, uh, the country represented in Congress, uh, all ethnicities and races, uh, and they're so angry at the possibility that they could, in uh, in quotes here, be replaced by people of color, they're willing to kill people of color. That kind of anger, uh, we have to literally get rid of in our society. Uh, the anger and the indignation, the righteous indignation that we have for this kind of hate, we need to keep that, Right. Um, And to your question about, you know, how do we respond to this kind of hate? Jeff, I would simply note this. Let us look at the families and friends of the victims. Note their grace, their dignity, their willingness to talk to journalists in the midst of their grief. I saw the, uh, the son of one of the victims... Uh, on television earlier this week who was answering a journalist's question with his hands clasped behind his back trying to tip his chin up you know how we tell little little uh, children when they start to cry keep your head up and i i'm watching this son who just lost his mother trying to keep his head up answering the question And demonstrating a grace and a courage. So my point being here is our moral exemplars are among the grieving. Our examples of how to love are among the hurt and the bruised and the broken in this moment. We have to look to them. We have to model their behavior, not the behavior of the murderer. And so... You know, I, I very much believe, as a fourth generation ordained minister, uh, the importance of reading the Torah, uh, the Quran, uh, the Bible in my tradition. But it's also important to read the faces and the examples of the people around us because they demonstrate, if you will, a kind of uh, a kind of eloquence of example. That is to say, their actions speak louder and more powerfully and more poignantly than their words, and We note the fact that uh, I've not heard anybody in Buffalo say we need to take revenge on these white nationalists. What I have heard is people calling for this country to come together, calling for this country to fight this racial terrorism and stamp it out, uh, and calling for us to be strong and resilient. And so when you ask, well, what do we do? I would simply say, what do we do has everything to do with who we listen to, and we need to listen to the grieving and the hurt and the broken, because they're literally not only pointing out to us what they need, but also who we should be. Does that make sense? It
0: makes sense to me. Um, But I think this week, if you look around, you don't have everybody denouncing what happened. In fact, after the Buffalo killings, Liz Cheney tweeted, The House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. History, she says, she tweeted, History has taught us that what begins with words ends in far worse. GOP leaders, she says, must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them. Liz Cheney, who, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, she's taken some uh, courageous stances in the last couple of years, in part because of her response to January 6th and what happened that day and denouncing that. Does she have a point here or is she off base? What she's saying to fellow Republicans, Liz
3: Cheney is sadly and rightly on point. The House GOP leadership and its enablers in cable news have given a wink and a nod of approval to the replacement theory or the great replacement theory for years on end. Having been warned over and over again about his dangers. When Mexicans were killed in El Paso in a Walmart, they were warned. When Jews were killed in the Poe Synagogue, they were warned. When black folk were killed at Mother Emanuel, they were warned. And yet they persist in giving lip service to their opposition to racism while literally standing behind a theory which essentially says that there is a cabal of Machiavellian Jewish people somewhere in the country who are conspiring to replace good white people with bad black and brown people. This is anti-Semitism and racism. And the fact of the matter is when you have some cable news hosts and politicians who use the words like elites and globalists uh, instead of saying Jews. When they say uh, people from asshole countries, when they say uh, people who don't look like us, referring to black and brown people, when they refuse to condemn and call out um, those in Charlottesville in the Unite the Right rally, who literally said, Jews will not replace us, referring to Jewish Americans, and they will not replace us, referring to blacks or African Americans. We got to be very clear about this, and we got to come very strong. This is literally white supremacy, white nationalism for the mainstream. And by our elected officials not calling this out, giving it a wink and, wink and a nod of approval. They are literally legitimizing. They are literally homogenizing. They are quite literally excusing the murder of Americans. We, there's no other way for us to say this other than that. Now, let us note here, this really goes back to not merely the, the French writer, Camu, who who wrote about uh, the great replacement, that is to say, the replacement of good white people for uh, bad black and brown people, uh, or uh, Theodore Bilbo, the the, the senator from the Deep South, who uh, said back in the 40s that white people were going to lose their place in a quote, mongrel nation. This goes all the way back to Reconstruction. When in the 1860s in the 1870s, you had uh, literally uh, Dixiecrats all across the South who said, "We can't live in a multiracial democracy. Uh, Black people have to uh, take a step back. They need to be. They need to go back to a state of of slavery." And so, my point being here is, in every epoch, in every age, in every decade, you've had politicians who've literally stoked. Racial fears, excuse racial fears um, to the detriment and death of people. And so, um, you know, Liz Cheney is right. She's absolutely right. And I go even further. And I I take no pleasure in in saying this, but I have to say it. There's blood on the hands, blood, our blood, the blood of Americans, the blood of people who died in Buffalo, who died in El Paso, who died in Pittsburgh, who died in Charleston and other places on the hands and on the desk and on the microphones and on the cable platforms these people use. There's no other way to say it. Cornell Brooks, thanks
0: for your time. This week, as soon as we heard about the mass shooting unfolding in Buffalo, New York, CBS News mobilized our troops. We sent correspondents, photographers, producers, to Buffalo to cover this unfolding story. As tragic as it was, we've talked to uh, victims. Uh, We've talked to survivors. Uh, We covered the president's trip as he tried to uh, explain the, the grief that the community was feeling. Take a listen to some of our CBS News coverage.
2: I kept hearing him closer and closer. I was instructing all my coworkers to just please be quiet so he won't hear us.
3: 13 people in total were shot inside that grocery store. This all unfolding at a store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo. Buffalo's police commissioner says the
0: 18-year-old suspect traveled hours to commit this attack.
3: We are now investigating terrorism charges, other murder charges, along with working with
2: our partners in the federal
3: government uh, so that they can perhaps file charges as well. The scene unfolded around 2.30 Saturday afternoon.
1: The individual exited his car and engaged four individuals. He shot four people in the parking lot. He was doing this when I seen him, you can
3: see inside the store. And so I saw him doing this and I'm like, I don't got a phone on me.
2: So I'm like, somebody, I'm screaming, called up, somebody called the police. This is the worst nightmare that any community can face. The depth of pain uh, that families are feeling and that all of us are feeling right now cannot even be explained. But people's running in. They running in, and they, I guess they ran over her. So I reached down to try to pick her up. And she said, go ahead, go ahead, I'm coming. I thought she was behind me, but she wasn't. So she saved my life because I was gonna stay there with her.
0: Discomfort, sadness, <clears throat> maybe a bit of regret. I wonder why out of all the people that, the three people that were spared, I was one of them. She's the first victim. Saw that with my own eyes. Mm. I'm hurt. I don't wanna see my baby no more. I'm hurt. All over a racist. Come on, man. Come on.
3: Uh, My mom uh, was there every day to take care of my father, every day. She loved him completely and uh, she was doing what she did every day. Um, And she left there and stopped by the store on the way home to get groceries and
0: encountered this individual. She gave me a hug, told me she loved me like we always do. She walked around the corner, I heard gunshots, I started seeing everybody run out of tops. She was a beautiful person and her wanting some snacks that day got her life taken. They can do this, walk out,
2: drop their weapon, get not a scratch on them and go to jail and be celebrated for it. What are we gonna do after this? That's all I'm worried about. Because my kid has to grow up here. What is the next step to, to prevent this from even happening anymore?
0: Messages on Discord dating back more than five months appear to show the suspected shooter's plot to kill as many black people as he could. In a December post, he promised to carry out an attack against those he slurred as replacers. A month later, he uploaded a picture of an assault rifle he allegedly bought at this store and used in Saturday's racist killing spree. By early March, the alleged gunman identified the top supermarket as attack area one, where he planned to shoot all blacks. Later that month, posts show that he scoped it out in person and uploaded hand-drawn maps of the grocery store. Discord says that it has an internal team that works to identify and remove extremist content like hate speech and threats of violence, but the platform has around 150 million monthly users. Retired FBI agent Katherine Schweit used to run the agency's active shooter program. She compares finding hateful posts online to searching for a grain of sand at the beach
2: unless the American people get their head out of the sand and find a way to be aware of their children, their neighbors and their coworkers, we're never going to solve this problem. What happened here is simple and straightforward. Terrorism, terrorism, domestic terrorism, violence inflicted in the service of hate and the vicious thirst for power, a hate that through the media and politics, the internet, has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced, by the other, by people who don't look like them and who are, therefore, in a perverse ideology that they possess and being fed lesser beings. I and all of you reject the lie. I call on all Americans to reject the lie. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit.
0: Warren Siegel is with the ADL. He is a frequent guest on CBS News broadcast because well the ADL does really important work that we rely on when it comes to tracking white supremacists. Oren, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jeff. All right. So you have a bunch of statistics about uh, the growth of these uh, white supremacist incidents where they're uh, spreading their propaganda across the country. Uh, Give us one of those uh, data points that you think uh, characterizes the problem in this country, the growing
1: problem in this country. Yeah. So I think one data point that people may find surprising is that when you look at the past 10 years at extremist related murders in this country, a full 75 percent of those have been carried out by right wing extremists and most of those by white supremacists. I think people think of the threat of ISIS and Al Qaeda as sort of the deadliest threats even today. And yet the data shows that one of the most, if not the most, in fact, most deadly threats is coming from within. Do you think government in this country, law enforcement in this country is acknowledging that? I think law enforcement is doing a better job. My understanding from FBI statistics is There are more investigations into domestic extremism i think it's hard to not be more responsive when we've seen attacks in pittsburgh and poway and el paso and charleston and even the insurrection on january 6th i think the problem is there may not always be as many tools in order to stop that because unlike international terrorist organizations we don't have a list of designated terrorist groups. And so a lot of what motivates domestic extremists is hatred that is completely protected in this country.
0: Is Part of the difficulty here is that we don't have these clearly defined, uh, or we don't have a lot of clearly defined groups when it comes to white supremacist domestic terrorists. Part of the difficulty is that these are... Individuals acting alone who've been radicalized, which is a term that, you know, as I, I've said before in this program, that we we used to use um, to, you know, characterize the threat from ISIS or Al-Qaeda. But these people, the alleged gunman in Buffalo, he was radicalized.
1: There are groups. There are some, right? People have heard of the names you know, the of neo-Nazi groups or of anti-government groups. I don't like to name them, you know, when I'm when I'm speaking to media, but there are group names out there that people have heard. But the reality is most of the deadly attacks have not been carried out by card-carrying members of any of these groups. These are people who subscribe to the ideologies of broader hate-fueled movements. And so in Buffalo, in El Paso, in Pittsburgh, etc. you can't trace them back to any one group, but all these groups share an ideology that is based on hatred of the other, creating fear and anxiety in communities and finding networks online that not only support and incubate these ideas, but help people to reach, recruit and radicalize others. And that's what makes it a movement Um, more than any one group. And and it's at our own peril if we only focus, frankly, on sort of group names.
0: And what we've seen thus far with the investigation into Buffalo is that in the alleged writings of this gunman, he referred to past mass shooting events. Um, He celebrated those events. He wanted to mimic those events. So there is a common thread here. What do you think it is?
1: You know, the the common thread is, is to me one of the more um, sort of depressing and disgusting elements of this attack. We did an analysis of the shooter's manifesto. We compared it to Christchurch. 63% of the manifesto that the Christ Church shooter used was literally copied and pasted by the Buffalo shooter into his own screen. He made some tweaks here and there to some language, but it almost wholesale copy and paste. He also mentioned shooters in Holly, Germany, and El Paso and Poway and Pittsburgh, etc. But more than just mentioning, he literally took the same steps as some of these shooters. He live streamed his attack he put hate symbols and the names of killers from the past on his weapon so that when he was live streaming the murder of innocent people, the viewer would see the hate symbols behind that, the hate behind that act. And when he's signaling back to that community, what he's saying is not only is the ideology here for you to read and see and understand but here are the literal tactics in which you can use to do the same thing. And there is a direct line between Andrews, Anders Brevik in Norway, the Christchurch shooter, the mass extremist shootings in the U.S., and in Buffalo. They are literally creating a blueprint for the next attack.
0: As you were answering that, answering that question, I was thinking, you know, being the justice, Homeland Security Correspondent, sometimes you, you feel like you're the grim reaper because you just deliver a lot of bad news. But it's it's important that people know what threats are out there, what law enforcement is doing. Um, what about your job? How did you, and the ADL does, as I said at the outset, a really good job of tracking these extremist threats why does the adl feel that there is a need
1: to track these kinds of threats the mission of adl is not only to stop the defamation of the jewish people but to secure justice and fair treatment to all we understand that the way that you combat anti-semitism is to fight all forms of hate and the way that you fight all forms of hate is to combat anti-Semitism. Jewish community has been the target of extremists for a long time, and it's not unique to the Jewish community. The African-American community has suffered at the hand of white supremacy for a even longer time in this country. And so we do it because that's our mission, because we know what hate looks like. We know how to identify that. We believe at our core that making a place that is safer for all communities is necessary. And frankly, you can't rely on any one institution, whether it's government, whether it's business, uh, whether it's one community, to do that work. Um, So for us, frankly, Jeff, it is an honor to be able to be tasked with understanding and responding to extremism Because we feel, even when we see what happens, even when we don't catch everybody, that ultimately we're making a world a safer place. And I I just can't think of a higher calling.
0: Well, maybe you can help me understand and our listeners understand. What is it in a society that is uh, happening on the surface that makes this white supremacist threat spread, Uh, this thing called the replacement theory, that whites are being replaced by people of color, what conditions in society make those kinds of messages appealing to people?
1: It's a great question, and and I should say, you know, I am am not a psychologist, right? Um, The human mind, the human condition, what motivates people is much more complicated than I think I can do justice to. But I do study and track the extremist mind. And I will say this might be uncomfortable for some people to hear, but what motivates all of us? A sense of belonging a sense of being some you know part of something bigger than ourselves feeling like we have a purpose and you know in a polarized society where you know debate doesn't happen naturally where it's more finger pointing where grievances are constantly pushed into people's faces people are going to look for answers wherever they can find them and some of those answers are in very dark places where people are trying to provide the answer by blaming somebody else, and so for some, they get a real sense of community when they join some, you know, fringe online space and see, oh, wow, these folks are giving me the answer. Right? Um, it's it speaks to them, and I think that suggests something about the inability uh, to have sort of a a a discourse in this country that is not filled with accusations and, you know, venom. It's just kind of, that's the default these days. And people stop listening and are gonna try to get answers somewhere else. And there are people who are willing to prey on them with some of the most destructive ideas ever imaginable. How how much
0: of a responsibility does social media Uh, or these online chat groups bear for spreading this toxic message?
1: Yeah, I think social media bears a huge responsibility. And frankly, it's an accountability that people in those industries have not fully embraced enough. You know, when, to this day, I don't know, what are we, 90-something hours after the attack, perhaps more? And my team is able to find these horrible videos of the shootings on multiple social media platforms online, right? We are in spaces seeing how extremists are celebrating and asking people to do copycat attacks. This is all available online right now. And it'll be online in a week because these companies are not doing enough. Now, there's two types. There are those companies that say they want to do more and are just doing a bad job. And then there's companies in this ecosystem online that actually don't really wanna do much, right? That they believe in this, under the guise of freedom of speech, that anything goes on their platforms, therefore, you know, denying any accountability for what happens on those spaces. So one more point I wanna make here, and and I I wanna be clear about this, it's simply not unreasonable for users of these platforms or even people that never used them before to expect that these platforms that are making billions of dollars invest a lot of that money into making sure that expressions of violence incitement to violence and the hatred that animates them don't find a safe space
0: all right oren Warren Siegel, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jeff. That is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall and District Productive. You can download and review this podcast and also check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever.
2: The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We
0: were blessed. My mom
2: was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.